gotta get rid of me first, right? All right, uh, Psalm 30. Psalm 30. I appreciate your kindness in many ways. Kind of a long title, but the first part of it is taken from the verse, kind of in the middle of the psalm there, verse 5. There's this interesting mixture in the psalm of both the idea of God's faithfulness, our calling out to God for help, and something that is somewhat unique in the calls for help that we've seen so far in the psalm. So far, the tone has very much been, I'm living right before God. People are oppressing, persecuting, threatening my life in various ways. The difference about this psalm is there seems to be an element of God's rebuke of David in terms of some measure of pride, particularly in the middle of the psalm. And yet we see also God restoring and keeping his faithful promises to David, even in the midst of that sort of circumstance. And so I think that that is good for us to keep in mind, because there are many causes for difficulty in our lives. Uh, We live in a sinful world, um, a system that opposes God. We live in a world that is cursed by the effects of sin, disease and sickness and death being consequences of that. But we also live in a world where there are consequences for our own personal sins. And it's hard to say whether David wrote this before his sin with Bathsheba. Potentially not, and yet yet if he did, he certainly had awareness of the fact that God rightfully judges, rebukes, chastises us at various points to bring us back to a right relationship with him. But he starts out, and we don't really get that tone in the first few verses, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. So he sort of starts at, over here looking back on these events. Sometimes he starts, and he's in the middle of something, and he cries out to God, help me, I'm right now facing this difficulty. But he starts with the, after it's all over, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. Enemies rejoicing over him would be a sign of God perhaps forsaking him or abandoning him to judgment for a time. Um, We think of the book of Judges. The enemies of Israel rejoiced frequently over Israel because of their sin and God allowing them to be punished and, and just the repeated cycle there. David is saying that's not what he had experienced. Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. We see, O Lord my God, again there's this expression of relationship. David is not speaking to someone who's distant over there like we looked at in the book of Acts chapter 19. You know, the, the, the sons of the priests say, Jesus whom Paul preaches over there. We don't know him, we don't follow him. But he's, let's use his name, drop his name, that's the guy that Paul talks about. That's not the attitude that we have here either. It's, O Lord, my God. David knows God. He has a relationship with him. When it says he cried to him for help and you healed me, some people look at this as physical healing. Some people look at this as spiritual healing. Um... I think the challenge for us is the two are not entirely disconnected in the experience of an Old Testament saint. 
when God heard Job's cries, he physically healed him as well as sort of renewing his relationship with him. Um, we see in Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. At its most fundamental level, the work that Jesus does on the cross takes care of sin and all its connected effects. The danger that we don't want to fall into is assuming that when he says here, you healed me, that this is some sort of guaranteed promise that if you get sick and you cry to God for help, he'll make you better right away or fully or all of those sorts of things. Because we know that that's not true in terms of experience and we also know that working in a miraculous way like that is not the way that God has often worked among his people, although he's certainly capable of it. So I think here, David, in light of what we'll see later in the psalm, I think he healed me, has more of overtones of restoration of his spiritual relationship, but I think we keep in mind all of those other things as well. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive, that I would not go down to the pit. Sheol and the pit were common expressions to speak of death. These were things where the people of Israel would have viewed death with some measure of with some measure of fear. There are people who argue and say that the Old Testament saints had no concept of resurrection until you get to the book of Isaiah, and I think that that is perhaps hard to reconcile with the hope that's held out to Adam and Eve, for example, that Satan's power would be defeated and all the promises that God makes to various other people throughout the course of the Old Testament. That being said, as we've talked about before in connection with this, there's a difference between I have a general understanding that God has the power to rescue me, deliver me, grant me life, and a full expression of it like we have in 1 Corinthians 15. There's certainly a progress in biblical revelation from less detail to more detail as God reveals more about his plan, specifically as it's connected with Jesus. In David's expression, he's essentially looking back on these events that he's gone through, and he's saying, God, you've rescued me from death. That's the main point of what it is that he's saying. So what's the response to, you've lifted me up, my enemies haven't rejoiced over me, I cried and you healed, you brought up my soul from death. Verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. When it says, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, we're sort of going more broadly than just David saying, I've experienced this, so you praise God. He's saying his own personal experience and probably similar experiences in the lives of those who would hear the reading of this psalm or recite it together, all of us collectively are supposed to praise God. There's a, a heading at the beginning of the psalm at the dedication of the house, uh, presumably the house of the Lord. So if this was read in that context, this would have been an opportunity for them to not only reflect on how God had delivered David, but on also how God had delivered them as well how this demonstrated his faithfulness to them, and how altogether as a result they needed to sing praise to God. When it said, you his godly ones, I think it's important for us to remember that although all Israel would have been present in this circumstance, not all people in Israel actually truly followed God and knew him in the way that the Bible called them to do. 
And Paul says this in Romans, not all Israel is Israel. What does that mean? It means not all of them believed. There were some who did. There were some who didn't. They all should have believed. But ultimately, as those who are godly, who are able and willing and consistent in singing praise to God, sing praise to the Lord and give thanks to His holy name. When we give thanks to His name, we're acknowledging that the one that we name as God, He is the one who is worthy of our praise. He is the one who has power. He is the one who has revealed Himself, whom we have a relationship with, and we honor Him accordingly. Verse 5 is a very poetic expression, but here I think we see sort of an explanation leading to what we also see in verse 6 through 9. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy in the morning. So, if God is angry, why is it but for a moment? Why is his favor for a lifetime? What sort of anger are we talking about? Verse 5 doesn't go into detail about the nature of God's anger, what he's angry about, but it does say that it is short. And I think that we have to set this in the context of what we see in the verse right before it. You, his godly ones, God's anger toward his people is comparatively short. Think about the captivity. For them, it was the lifespan of some of them. This obviously hasn't happened yet at the time this psalm is written, but looking back on Israel's history, I think it's a good parallel. God puts them under captivity. They're in Babylon for basically for a generation. God restores them. Think about how long before that God called Abraham. A brief period of Israel's history was God's judgment and chastisement and correction of their idolatry. A much longer period of Israel's history was God showing undeserved and unreturned and often unappreciated favor to his people. When it says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy in the morning, again, there is a, this idea that it comes to an end, and then a new day comes and there is rejoicing, and perhaps in connection with, it, with what David says in another psalm, that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Why was David in a circumstance where he would experience God's anger even for a moment? Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Think to what the uh, writer of Proverbs 30 says. God, I ask you for two things. Don't give me so much that I think that I don't need you. Don't give me so little that I'm tempted to think you won't provide and I steal. When we have all of our needs met, we think we don't need God. Whether that's financially or spiritually or relationally or whatever way we want to think about it, then we think we don't need God. When our kids obey when our bills are paid on time, when uh, things are going well at work, when everything is right between you and your spouse, when all these things are going on, 
we're tempted to think we don't really need God because there's no problem. We can say in our prosperity of various kinds, although here in view is probably physical prosperity, what can touch me? I will never be moved. Nothing can touch me. We talked about in Ecclesiastes Sunday night that money is protection. Money is protection both from physical threats and from the uncertainty of not having money. But it's also a, an unpredictable protection. And I think we're reminded here that if we say, like David apparently did, at least briefly, I am doing fine, nothing can touch me, everything is okay, we are speaking with a measure of pride that God will, in His kindness, correct and show us that we do need Him. O Lord, by Your favor You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face, I was dismayed or ashamed. There's a lot of speculation on what the first phrase means, whether it's to be taken positively or negatively, is, is by your favor you have made, is the mountain like God's protection, God is a refuge, or is the mountain this obstacle that God throws up in David's way to say, no, you're not in charge of your life, you can't live it on your own. In connection with the second half of that verse, I think it's probably the sense is along these lines, by your favor, either you have created this obstacle to bring me back to yourself, or by your favor you have secured me even when I didn't deserve it. But there is still a measure of God's displeasure in the second half of the verse. You hid your face, I was dismayed, or I was ashamed. We've talked about this before. We are not in any actual sense closer or further away from God when we sin or when we obey. But it certainly feels like it, doesn't it? And just like if you did something as a child that you knew your parents would disapprove of and be frustrated by and disappointed in you about, there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of uh, being dismayed or afraid or discouraged because you know what their response is going to be. There are parallels between that circumstance and I think what David is speaking of here. David's spoken in pride. God's response to pride is to cast down the proud and to exalt the humble. So what is David's response, his correction to his statement of pride? To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. I called and I asked, I pleaded, what is the argument that he makes? It sounds like a foxhole conversion. Somebody's about to chuck a grenade in my pit, save me, and I'll live for you the rest of my life. But what is it that's actually going on? David's actually appealing to God and, and making this argument. If you wipe me off the face of the earth, which as a sinner I deserve, there's one less person to praise you, and I can't praise you for your faithfulness to me in this circumstance because I won't be around to do it. It's essentially what he's saying here in this verse. What profit is there if I go down to the pit? The profit is certainly not to David, and the profit is not to God. It's the same sort of appeal that Moses makes. God, if all the nations look and say, you pulled them out of Egypt and you wiped them out in the wilderness... 
how are they going to see your faithfulness? But if you put up with this difficult and rebellious and stubborn people, people look at God and say, God is faithful even when we don't deserve it. Just read through Psalm 78 sometime and you'll see that. David's making the same kind of argument. Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? What's the dust? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If he dies, he turns to dust. He can't praise God physically on this earth. So, what's his response? Verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. That's his plea. That's his call. So verse 1 looks back on it and says, Even though I sinned in pride and you judged me for a time, you heard my prayer of repentance and you restored me. So verse 1 sort of looks back on it. Then he talks about what it's like and he ends with what his prayer was. And isn't it fascinating that David would call to God and say, Be my helper, when he clearly doesn't deserve it. He says pretty much in verse 6, Nothing can touch me. I don't even need you, God, really. I mean, thanks for everything, but I really don't even need you, at least in this specific moment. God punishes him and he says, Lord, be my helper. Sometimes we think that when we sin turning back to God is the last place that we should go. Because we feel unworthy, we feel proud, we feel like a variety of thoughts. But turning back to God is the only place that we can or should go when we have sinned against Him. Because, as it says in many places, He's faithful, He's ready to forgive, He hears our prayers. If we belong to Him, He's doing a work that He has not given up on and will finish. And then verse 11 and 12 goes back to what he said at the beginning in verse 1. He's moved past the circumstance to his response to that circumstance. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Verse 4, he said, All of you in the congregation give thanks to God. Verse 12, he says, he's talking about him personally giving thanks to God. Verse 11, he describes sadness to joy, expressions of mourning to expressions of praise. Two examples in David's life. Think about his mourning when his son died that he had with Bathsheba. David was broken. David was sorrowful. David mourn. But from a circumstance like that, even though chronologically it doesn't, didn't fit, there were instances in David's life where he went from that sort of sorrow to the joy and ecstasy that he experienced when it says in 2 Samuel 6 that he danced before the ark of the Lord because he was so overjoyed that it had been restored to God's people as it was supposed to be. So much so that people around him were like, David, you need to calm down. You shouldn't be this excited about this thing. But that is the sort of praise and expression and exuberance that we ought to have when we say, I sinned, I deserve this, God did this instead, delivered me and helped me. I've gone from sorrow and perhaps even impending death to deliverance and God's faithfulness and I'm overcome with joy. Brief comment on that. We suspect our emotions because we feel like we can't directly control them. 
our emotions are not automatically sinful. I mean, the, the argument that people make is emotions are sinful because you can't really control them just like the flesh is sinful because you can't really control it and it's the way that you express sin in many ways. While there is some element of truth to all of that, the danger is saying this part of who I am in God's image is innately evil because Jesus shared in all these things too. So we start to question whether Jesus was really sinless if we start saying elements of what it means to be human are automatically evil. The body is not evil, but it can be used for evil. Emotions are not evil, but they can be used in selfish or evil ways. So, the corrective for us is probably not that we need to calm down and not express our emotions even more. That might be the corrective for a church when they've let some of their emotional expression get out of hand. The, the corrective for us is to say, if God has done something over which you should rejoice, then rejoice! You know? If God is working in our hearts and forgiving us of sin and delivering us when we need help, we ought to rejoice in that. We ought to tell the people around us about it. We ought to praise God in the gathered congregation and individually in our homes when we're by ourselves because God deserves our praise. So, where are you in this psalm? Are you at the moment of I'm sinning and God's judgment is pending? I need to cry out to Him in repentance for Him's forgiveness? Have you experienced that in the past and you need to praise God for it? Do you see someone nearby you who is somewhere in this and you need to remind them of the truth that we see in this psalm? We're all in this psalm at some point of the stage that David describes. So repent if you need to repent. Praise God if you need to praise God. Admonish a fellow believer with these truths if they need to hear it. And remember that God's uh, punishment of His people, He does discipline us. Just like hopefully we have a measure of discipline toward our children when they do wrong, not out of anger, not out of selfishness, not out, out of frustration, but for their good. God, for our good, disciplines us for a brief time so that He might pour out His favor on us for a far greater time, both now and in eternity. And the only proper response to that sort of God is to praise Him. Let's go now to our time of prayer.